Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Written in Blood The Petersons seemed the ideal academic couple, well-respected, prosperous, and happy. All that came crashing down in December of 2001, when Kathleen apparently fell to her death in their secluded home in an exclusive area of Durham, North Carolina. But blood-spattered evidence and a missing fireplace poker suggested calculated, cold-blooded murder. Her trusted husband, Michael, stood accused. Prosecutors introduced evidence at trial that 16 years earlier, Peterson was the last person to see his neighbor alive before she was found dead at the bottom of a staircase. With intimate access to the family's award-winning journalist Diane Fanning's Written in Blood spins a heart-wrenching true crime tale that's been the subject of an acclaimed HBO TV documentary, The Staircase. Diane Fanning joins me now. Welcome, Diane. Hi, great to be with you today, Jim. Great. And we'll get into the fact that your book, Written in Blood, was uh, uh, a big part uh, of background, if you will, uh, information for the HBO version. And they also obviously got a lot of information from the original French uh, documentary. I don't know where these Frenchmen found it, but they trekked over in, to, to Durham and and uh, made this documentary. So, um, so Diane, um, this happened in the early 2000s, the crime and the trial. And uh, how did you become, now you're from Durham, correct? Or you're from North Carolina? No, no. no. I was living what? in Texas at the Texas. time. Texas. Oh my God. Yeah. And, so, and my publisher, who's in New York, um, called me and told me about the case. And I was fascinated because here was a writer. I could relate to that. And my tendency was to think the man could possibly be innocent. And when I first started out, and also I knew of David Rudolph and his work with the Innocence Project. So that added more to that possibility. So I went into it with a very open mind. And um, what surprised me is talking uh, with many of the production people from the French company uh, while I was at the courtroom, many of them were already very biased against the South and very biased against, um, and bi biased for Michael Peterson. They were certain when they came in to do that documentary that he was innocent. And they, they thought very much that the bisexuality issue with Michael Peterson was something that would emotionally mess with the minds of the jurors. But from talking to jurors, that's not the way they 
they felt. Um, the whole point was it was irrelevant that Michael was bisexual. What was relevant was that Michael was having sex with other people outside of his marriage. And it was his infidelity that bothered Catherine, Kathleen. Here she was supporting him and his two, the two girls that he was guardian of and uh, giving lots of money to his two adult sons, taking care of the expenses with the house. And he's running around on her. It right. just was not, not acceptable. She left her first husband for having an affair with a woman. So whether he was having an affair with a woman or a man wouldn't have mattered to her. What mattered was the affair itself. Well, first of all, I do have to tell my audience, they have to get the book. And I know to say that with everyone. I do say that with everyone in my podcast, because otherwise I wouldn't have decided to do it if I didn't like the I usually like the case. Sometimes the books are a little weak. That doesn't matter. I'm talking to the primary source on the case. Um, but this one is both a an amazing book, uh, as all your others are, so they can pick up any one that they can find uh, and read it. But you had in this one, and most of them you do, this. you were a primary source in the sense you sat through the trial, and you also had access, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that's going on even today, 20 years later. So give us a uh, biographical background on uh, the cast of characters, as it were, as we go forward. Michael Peterson uh, first married Patty Peterson. He and Patty had two boys, Todd and Clayton. Uh, Patty was very, very good friends with another teacher in Germany named Liz Ratliff. They were teaching mostly military kids um, while they were over there. And uh, Liz, her husband was in the military and he was out on assignment and he died. It wasn't from battle, but he died while he was out on assignment in, a, in another continent. And Liz was left with two little girls, um, Margaret and Martha, and the two little girls were quite young. They were both preschool. And Liz was just at her wit's end. I mean, not only was she contending with grief, but she was trying to plan a future. And her husband had already always taken care of the financial stuff. So Michael stepped in to take care of her finances. And then it seems that... Um, there was some thievery going on and there is a um, forged signature on her will and there's missing money. And I do think that that's what caused the kerfuffle that ended with Liz Ratliff's death. She too died at the foot of a staircase, just like the second wife did which is an amazing coincidence, which becomes even more amazing when you see that the marks on both of their heads were very similar. So, 
So she, um, she died. And when she died, the will with the false signature uh, turned the two daughters over to Patty Peterson and uh, mainly to Patty because that was her friend. But she added Michael since they were married. There was a long period of time where um, they were trying to get rid of the girls. And then at some point, Michael decided he wanted to keep Margaret because she was a very obedient child. And Martha, who was younger, was causing a lot of crap, you know, how toddlers do. And um, he tried that. And then he realized, well, um, I might as well keep him since I am getting money from the federal government because both of the parents lost their lives on foreign land while in the service of the government. So he uh, decided to keep him, and he was asked in later years why he did not adopt them. And he said, well, if I adopted them, the checks would stop coming in. So a lot of people refer to them as adopted children, but they never were. They never were. He was their guardian, but not an adopted father. Um, And so then after everyone came back to the United States, Um, Michael Peterson separated from his wife, Patsy, and started living with Kathleen, uh, who uh, had just gotten out of a divorce. She had a daughter from that marriage named Caitlin Atwater. And so Kathleen was a rather remarkable woman. She was the first woman ever admitted to the Duke University School of Engineering. And she had a six-figure job. And she was also a fantastic hostess. She was nicknamed the Martha Stewart of Durham. And they lived in this big, old, elegant house. It had a pool, which was nice. It had... uh, It had an elegant staircase in the front of the house and then another staircase that came out about at the kitchen. And that is where Kathleen was found dead at the foot of that staircase. Michael and Kathleen have no children of their own that, that are birthed from, from them. And his other children, older children, a little bit older, Todd and Clayton, and we'll get into Clayton later, Todd and Todd. So Todd and yeah. Clayton, you, you take some, I'll take some. Todd and Clayton are living with their mother, his first wife. Have I sort of got that right? Well, by the time the crime happened, um, Todd and Clayton are adults were adults right right so they were living they were on, on their, their own but they it. weren't very financially dependent i mean independent right and one of the big problems was that clayton um decided to set a bomb <laughs> at duke university i believe in the cafeteria and ended up serving four years in federal penitentiary because of that um, Todd uh, was 
got caught up in doing a lot of drugs and um and he was definitely a womanizer but you know what young guy doesn't want to be that so uh that that was pretty much what was going on so the the boys were in and out of the house a lot even though they were grown and on their own uh and the other kathleen michael Caitlin, Margaret, and Martha were all living in that big mansion. So now we come to the night of December 9th. Uh, December 9th, which is uh, on our way to Christmas. Uh, and and uh, the setup is at that point, no one is home inside the house but uh, Kathleen. And Michael, uh, this is his his reporting, of course. There are no witnesses, huh? no doorbell camera. Huh? So he is out by the pool, I believe, at yeah. two o'clock in the morning, or at least you know, in the in the middle of the night. And it's reported through records that it's like between 51 and 55 degrees. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I, you know, I mean, I don't know if he had a bathing suit on. Maybe he was, had regular clothes and was sitting. No, he had shorts. He's on. wearing shorts. Shorts. Yes. That's, I'm sorry. Even if you're not in the water. And he goes into the house, obviously, whenever, two in the morning or sometime in the, in the wee hours. And what does he just, now I'm, I'm sitting, this is his report before according police come. Him, what, does, what does he find? According to him, he found uh, Kathleen Peterson dead at the foot of the stairs. He assumed she had a fall. When he called 911, at first he told them that she was still breathing. And um, she, he gave her a lot of details about the steps and everything. And then there was a second call. And um, the fact of the matter is that stairway was covered in blood. There was blood all over the place. But never once did Michael Peterson mention the blood on his 911 call. And to me, that was rather telling. There are so many things, and we'll get through them one by one, that are incredibly telling. Uh, and you can, again, even if you go at this, that he's guilty, you go at it, that he's innocent. I, I'm not impartial. I could never be on a jury. I'd walk in and go, that guy, he's guilty. Uh, that's just how I am. So that I never have to serve jury duty. But in your book, I want to ask this one particular line. It's from the um, 911 call. And I'm assuming it was played in the in the um, courtroom, but it, yes. you can't get that from your writing because you can't hear words. But you quote, you put in quotes, "I didn't," mm, which some of us could, and then it's garbled. Some of us could take that to mean mean I didn't mean, but we do mm -hmm. have clearly, mm -hmm. I guess, I didn't. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So his first thing is not, you know, I was out swimming or I this, I didn't. And then we get garble. So he may have yeah. obviously cut himself off and didn't, I didn't mean to throw her down the stairs. We don't know if that yeah. was the next thing that was going to come out. So, so obviously then uh, EMS and cops are, are just are uh, sent out, correct? Yes. Yes. And um, the interesting thing is uh, he said he was only outside one time. He said it was half an hour after she went in. The other time it was 45 minutes after she went in. And the evidence at trial of red neurons in her brain said that he was a liar. It takes a minimum of two hours. And as much as four hours 
for someone to develop red neurons. They only occur when you have slowly bled to death because the blood had dried. And uh, if you came in and found your spouse laying at the foot of the stairs, uh, you would call right away. You wouldn't wait till the blood died. There is his shoe print on the back of her pants. How did that get there? Did it happen because he took his foot and shoved at her body to see if she was still alive? We don't know that for a fact, but that's certainly what it looks like. And um, he just let her bleed to death. And if you talk about, let's say he attacked her because of something she said, and it was an impulsive act. He wanted to make sure she was dead before he called 911. He was chasing her up the stairs. That's where she went to get away from him. And um, I, I don't think she fell the whole length of the stairs. Um, I, it's, it's easy to see with the history Mike has of his extreme temper that he would lose it if she said, okay, this is it for me. I'm out of here. I'm not supporting you and your kids anymore. Um, that he would have, he would have gone berserk. And to no. me, I think if she discovered something indicating that he had been unfaithful to her, she'd be ready to go. That's two strikes. Um, now, again, I talk, we'll talk about the experts later. But when I first, you know, re, you know, again, your title, we have to keep throwing out there blood, blood, blood. I have fallen downstairs. Now, I was conscious. And we'll get into they were claiming, I mean, the defense is claiming that she was drunk and on Valium. Okay. I've, I've had a couple of cocktails and I've gone down like four steps. Now, I didn't tumble. You know, I start now. No one pushed me. I missed a step. My heel missed a step. And I've gone down three or four steps. First of all, I wrenched a knee. I never hit my head. And now I know that was me. My body protected itself, whatever. How do you explain all that blood from a, even if you hit your head on every step going down? Yeah. Which obviously also the evidence did not show that was possible. Right. And it also, there was evidence. Um, <clears throat> Deaver's evidence has been uh, discredited. Dwayne Deaver this, from the state police. But one of the things he said was that there was a midair point of contact with her head and some object. When Dr. Henry Lee expert for the defense team took the stand he confirmed that midpoint point that mid-air point of contact that means that it wasn't the wall it wasn't the stairs it wasn't anything in there sometime something ran into her head which meant someone had to take something and bash it into her head got it got it um, the other thing that we can get through a trial, we'll talk about that, but it's, I bring it up now because it was part of what the police first saw, obviously, um, is because uh, I don't think it was explained. Maybe it was, and I missed it. Um, she had hair clumps. 
in her hand, hand or hands. And uh, it was later uh, 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 tested that it was her hair. Was there any uh, uh, description, either explanation by prosecution or defense, how she came to pull her hair out? If you're being attacked on your head, your hands go right up to your head. And that pull, you can pull hair out of your head struggling when you're being attacked. Um, I mean, again, that's a big nail in the coffin for me. That's a real smoking gun, too. Um, But soon the crime scene uh, became a mob scene uh, with family and friends and uh, neighbors uh, dropping by to see what's going on. There there were uh, a lot of friends and family coming around. Um, The the three girls were all away at different colleges, so they weren't there. And um, but but Todd was there. Uh, a friend, a girlfriend, and there were the first responders from the ambulance service, the medics. Uh, there were uh, the first police officer that responded to the scene. There were detectives there. Uh, it, it, it was a bit of a, a crazy place. And then the forensic people, too, on top of all of that. And like, like any potential crime scene, they're going to be all over the place, uh, filming it, taking still shots, collecting evidence. Of course, in this case, unless you have a, uh, a fingerprint would be irrelevant unless it's right on top of blood because uh, the two people involved live there. So, uh, you know, your fingerprints, my fingerprints are all over your houses. So that doesn't matter. Um, the hair was clearly hers. The, the other thing that um, made it chaotic is that although most people that were there were sitting down and doing what they were told, people like Todd started running around, running his mouth, calling his uncle, who was a lawyer out in um, Reno, I believe. Uh, so that was Uncle Bill. And uh, it, it, it was difficult trying to herd those people with uh, Todd really rebelling against any kind of control. And Michael basically had an, the attitude, this is my house and I can go where I want to. Defense is going to say she fell the, you know, and I'll use a, I'll be a little, a little snippy here uh, or sarcastic. She was falling down drunk and she fell down. So that was defense. The other possible, go ahead. But they tested her blood alcohol level. She was not at the, she was below the legal limit, clearly below the legal limit. They tested her Valium in her blood. That was way low, too. That was not sufficient to make her falling down drunk, which is what the defense tried to prove. And the 
uh, prosecution, obviously, when they charge Michael, no, it was murder. It was not fall down and yes. it wasn't a stranger. So those were they didn't come. They didn't try to come up with any other weird. It was either a stranger or suicide. They didn't even get into the stranger too much. They they got the experts, the defense. This was an accident. She was drunk. She spun down the stairs. She fell down 28 stairs. And along the way, hit the banister eight times, and and then the owl yeah. flew in. No, look at the the owl thing actually well, came up during the trial, but not in the trial itself. But the theory came out at that time. Well, the some um, ludicrous owl theory uh, came forth that possibly um, an owl or a group of owls, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, uh, chased. Uh, Kathleen uh, pecking at her and, and batting them with their wings. And she ran into the house bloody and c- covered in owl feathers. And, you know, that's and she fell down and, and smashed her head. Uh, so that was sort of the theory. The feathers and hair are um, very unreliable uh, for, for their presence. Now, it's different if... Um, if someone is got clutching ripped out hair from the person who attacked them, that's, that's quite different. But in this case, uh, th- there were these owl feathers. Okay, you've got two things possibly going on here. It's the origin of the owl feathers. One, she put up a fresh Christmas tree that day. There could have been owl feathers in that tree. Secondly, it is an old, old house. And who knows when somebody could have tracked owl feathers in there. There are owls on the outside. But, you know, so I don't know how that theory became credible when everybody at one point was laughing at it. And as you say, it never made it into the trial, but of course, it's it's made it into the lore, the the yes, folklore of yes, the case, yes. and it's it's hysterical. But very little time passes when there's an indictment, correct? I mean, uh, tell me how old the yeah. distance. What yeah. was the- uh, it, it was a short time. Uh, it was the the search warrant. The the second search warrant was served uh, on the day of the funeral. So this, this was pretty quickly. And uh, yes, there was an autopsy. Yes, there was a secondary leg of that autopsy involving a um, forensic neurologist to look at what was in her brain. But it still didn't take all that long. I mean, it, there was enough time that her sisters could come up from Virginia, and down from Virginia. The three girls could come back from colleges in San Francisco, Louisiana, and New New York, but they got, there was time for them to get there. And, um, but it wasn't a delay, like an ugly delay or anything like that, that you hear about sometimes. So it had, it, it was pretty quick, but to people who lose someone to an act of violence, it seems very long. So they, they, they did bring the case once 
they they had the evidence from the autopsy that was the final that was the final blow that uh, ended his freedom at that time so he um uh is was he um jailed or did did he was able to bail yes he got out on bail he got out on bail um and i can't it was i think it was a rather high bail but he got out on and um, while he was out, he was allowed to um, travel out of state uh, to go to where his mother was in a coma in a hospital. And um, the family members who were there wanted her, you know, to, be, to stay on life support until uh, Michael could come and say goodbye, which he did. Uh, and it's recounted that he, you know, came to the bedside where she was on life support in a coma and uh, patted her her hand or you know kissed her on the forehead um took a pause and then said enough of this nonsense let's turn it off that's okay. our michael so that's michael so tell us about the dogs this is again long before the murder but it again shows us his his quick temper and his 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 disregard i guess for life Yes, he was uh, very brutal with the dogs. Um, he, he was furious if they went in the swimming pool. Uh, he corrected every time they made a mistake. I mean, he beat them. He beat them frequently. And he finally beat one dog to death. And uh, it, it's a horrific thing to witness. I mean, there were people running out of his house trying to stop him. But he didn't stop until it was too late. So let's um, let's fast forward to the trial now. Um, you were there, so rather than me yeah. even saying, "How about this? How about this?" Why don't you tell me about the highlights for you? I mean, and you said you you went into it feeling one way, maybe, or being neutral. And how yeah. did you? How after like the 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 defense spoke to say, "Yeah, he's not guilty," and then or how did it? I mean, I've never been in these. You know, sat through one of these kind of trials, which would be fascinating just for myself. How am I processing this? So the, the science side of it was what appealed to me. Um, and I took, initially, I took Dwayne Deaver's testimony at face value. I did not suspect him to be cutting corners or anything. Uh, and, and I don't think anybody did. There were a lot of people shocked when they found out uh, Dwayne Deaver uh, was not as ethical and open and honest as he should have been. Nonetheless, there were a couple of things that stood out to me. One was the blood stain on the inside of his shorts, and I saw the shorts. The other was um, the midair point of contact that he demonstrated, which, as I said, that was confirmed by a defense witness, so that that remains credible. The other thing that really blew me away was the incompetent way that the authorities handled Liz Ratliff's death in Germany. Um, they did not have a forensic pathologist. They had just a regular pathologist who, being working for the Army, spent most of his time investigating 
accidents, automobile accidents for the most. Part. But they exhumed her. They then exhumed the body yes. as part of the trial. Yes. And um, it was it was called at the time a medical thing. And yet uh, there were people like Michael denying there was any blood there. But I talked to the woman, another teacher in Germany, who had led the charge to clean up the blood in that staircase. And it was freaking everywhere. There was some she had to get help because she couldn't reach. So um, the, the, Michael uh, took the role of the man in charge and he discouraged the police officers and and, and contributed negative information that uh, wasn't exactly true. Uh, but he was the last person to see her before her body was discovered. The body was already in the United States. Oh. It had been buried, buried next in to the United her husband States. in Texas. Right. Who okay. was already deceased when she right. died. That body was exhumed. It was transferred back to Durham, North Carolina, um, where the medical examiner did a new autopsy. And the freaky part was how well-preserved her body was. It was amazing. But she was able to examine um, the, the wounds on the back of her head and, and do a as complete an autopsy as you can do on a body that old. That old, yeah. And she she um, she, she concluded that it, too, was a homicide and that she had had blunt force trauma to her head. Now, there's many degrees of blunt force trauma. Um, you know, some of it kills you instantly. Some of it lets you bleed to death. Uh, if you follow the logical timeline... Liz was killed at night and not discovered till morning. So if she wasn't dead when Michael left her, she was dead before anybody else got there. Now, this information, let's let's be a little legal legal here. This uh, this whole uh, side case obviously was debated outside of the jury's presence more than once. Should this be admitted? And we'll talk about that. It does get admitted. And then there's something else we'll talk about. Uh, with the uh, the escort that, again, out of the uh, uh, um, hearing of the jury uh, gets debated. But so but we'll take this first. So it's debated. And the judge, does he I'm trying to remember, does he rule on both of these sort of uh, objection by the defense issues, the death of Liz and this other thing we're going to talk about? Or were they individually allowed in? Did he rule on? I think one? they were both individual he may have announced his decision That's together, it. but but they were both they, they were uh, both made individually, uh, and both argued in separate hearings. Um, and yeah, he allowed it in, and I think probably for him, the crucial thing were the wounds on the back of the two women's heads and how they were so similar. And uh, the other thing that I imagine had a bearing on him is who was the last person seen with both of these women. And it was Michael Peterson. And coincidences do happen, but when they start piling on top of each other. um, 
So let's let's take let's take the second thing because again it's another nail. It's a mo. I mean, and and you don't have to have a motive in a case. It can be you have no idea why this person, if you're charging them, has done it. But a motive helps the jury. And yes. so the the motive we talked a little bit about was money on on you know her having to maybe had an argument about money also that she had uh you know a lot of she had money coming from a company she had life insurance all that kind of good stuff so uh even if it wasn't why he did it it didn't hurt that now he's going to have some money if he can get away with this yes. Yes. but the other issue is we said we just glossed over was the infidelity but yes. the infidelity uh, was not with women, uh, to our knowledge. Tell us about the other thing that was still uh, um, objected to by the defense, saying it's got nothing to do with anything. The judge felt otherwise. And what was that yes. all about? That was, um, he was trying to hook up with a male escort. Um, he was also known to have... Um, had assignations with other men at the Y at where he spent a significant amount of time. And um, he, uh, he tried to say that Kathleen knew about it and that she was okay with it. They had an agreement, but that has been, that, that was plowed under deeply. A Kathleen I don't think was that concerned that it was a man that he was having sex with, but just that he was having sex outside of marriage. That's why she left her first husband. So why would she accept it in her second husband? I do not think that uh, she or the jurors or most of Durham even was uh, obsessed with the bisexuality part. I got to admit, it was entertaining because that escort was on the stand and he was right rowdy. Um, and in fact, at one point when he was asked about the men that he had had sex with, he said, there are all kinds of people. Oh, well, one of them was a judge. And the judge at that point instantly said, not this judge. So it was there was. And the, the comeback, and the comeback, I love the, it's in the book. It's great. The comeback by, by the DA was uh, stipulated, uh, which for <laughs> our non-court people mean it's a little joke saying, well, of course not. Yeah, you know, nobody's going to want to sleep with you or whatever, whatever <laughs> side comment yeah. you want to give to it. So there was a, a little bit of, of, of uh, levity uh, at that point. And yes, and, this and guy was. The guy on the stand really played it up. He was a. Uh, basically a, a kind of comic character and and for a long trial like this he was comic relief for everyone and one other thing i read i did take this i took this page down it's so fun um after the stipulation and it says uh uh that the uh uh whoever whether it was defense i think it was defense asks him do you know anything about the death of kathleen uh peterson and you know he says i know diddly diddly and so the judge goes, I take it that means nothing. So <laughs> I, like you said, this was and he had a uh, he had a, um, you know, whatever you call it, a, a screen 
name or whatever that was not his real name. Uh, right. yes. Something short, you know, like Buck Naked or something. I, I don't know. But uh, and so uh, now what do you know was all that because you were there? Was this in front of the jury too? this questioning of him or was it just to find out if they're going to put the evidence in? No, once they decided to admit it, it was done all over again in front of the jury. And he was just as funny both times. Um, but the, you know, I, I didn't see the people that talked about it aside, take the lawyers out of it for a minute, but the people that talked about it, that knew Michael, that knew Kathleen, said the problem was infidelity. Not bisexuality, it was the infidelity. No, I agree. I agree. Um, and if so you look at look at Kathleen, Kathleen was big in the arts. And the fact of the matter is, when you're active in the arts, you meet homosexual people all the time. So this was no big, oh, she's just an innocent Innocent, a uh, straight white woman never ran across this before. No, I don't believe that. Yeah, but down south too. She was a Southern yeah. Belle. They don't they don't tanker to those gay people. But that wasn't. But she was, was sophisticated. Not a Southern girl. She, she was, was sophisticated too. And so yeah. let's now go to a serious moment because you were there uh, that day. I hope as well when the video was shown uh, the walkthrough uh, at the the night yes. of the because you do recount. And, and again, I'm sure you can find it. It's probably online in, in one of the documentaries or whatever, because it's probably public uh, record. But you recounted in your book and you recount very clearly what uh, how it affected the juries. Talk to it from your standpoint. Well, what I did when I was actually in the courtroom, I knew I could get a copy of that video to look at. So when that video started playing, the TV was put up right in front of the jury. So if you were just sitting out in the body of the courtroom, you couldn't see it. I moved myself over so I could look straight at the jury. Just about everybody else was way over on the other side looking at the video with the jury. But I knew there was time to look at the video. But there was only one opportunity to watch the faces of the jurors. And that's what I did. How, when you on your own, were it, looked at the video, or did you then subsequently... You got a copy. Yes, I did look at the video. And, and how I, did it? How did it play with you? I mean, how? What did you? It was. I still have the picture of Kathleen's body deeply embedded in my brain. It was horrifying. The look on her face has haunted me. I um, seeing her sprawled there in a very undignified position for a, for a woman who was sophisticated. She was worldly. She, uh, you know, she went around the world for her company. I mean, she even went to uh, Moscow to, to help out there with setting up telecommunications um, after the uh, Soviet Union fell. So she, she was not um, an, an ignorant barefoot woman. And to see her sprawled there, just in that position that was very undignified, and just seeing all the blood. And another thing that really beat into my head was the blood fat splattered poster of the cat sitting up at the end of the stairway. Um, it is, oh, 
there are just some scenes that once you look at them, they just can't leave your head. And Kathleen's body there remained with me. The blood, the expression on her face, the awkward position she laid in, it broke my heart. Now, the, um, certainly my audience may be asking this, and you know what? If you want to know, read the book. No. That everyone, of course, because now we're saying she was beaten, they want a weapon. And all the, although the uh, prosecution suggested uh, what the, the weapon might have been, something from the fireplace maybe, they didn't actually present uh, the actual murder weapon. That, that was uh, never found. He could have hit her with anything yes. and buried and I it. will tell you why I think there was no weapon at the scene. I think Todd arrived alone before his official arrival when the fire department pulled up. I think he arrived alone. I think he stopped Michael from trying to clean up the blood because all it was doing was making a mess. And I think because of the evidence found on Todd's clothing that he disposed of the weapon. There is on his shoulder a blood transfer stain. And then directly behind that stain, down on that same foot, there is a very round drop of blood. That means it had to have fallen straight down. So whatever the murder weapon was, I think he put it, it on dripping. his shoulder, yep. carried it out of the house, and disposed of it somewhere. Now, did this come? I mean, I, you do cover that in the, in the book, but was it brought up by? I it forget. was not brought up in trial because it presented a problem. Um, they were firmly believed in the theory that's what that happened. But if they said that Todd at any point had his hand on the murder weapon, suddenly the defense could say, oh, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt, maybe Todd killed her, maybe it wasn't Michael. And there have been cases where the two, two people were separately tried for a murder and both of them got off because each jury thought the other person had committed the murder. So how did you feel, like you said, you're there every day watching the jury. And again, we had that. Were they nodding on the dueling? Uh, were they nodding off during the dueling experts who were explaining spatter? And I tell you where they really nodded off was during the financial testimony. And I'll be honest, I almost did, too. I mean, that was the most boring, boring day of the whole trial. It was like, oh, please, no more numbers, please put those spreadsheets away. But um, the yeah, that, that was difficult. The one thing that they were really on the edge of their seats with was Dr. Henry Lee's testimony, because Dr. Henry Lee came in there to testify for the defense with a well-known reputation and a lot of credibility. And yet there were times they found him not credible. They thought that when he said that it was too much blood for a beating, 
that that was the most ridiculous thing they ever heard. And um, it's too much. Well, hold on. It's too much for a beating, but it's it, it's not too much for falling down the stairs and hitting yeah. your head twice. Go figure okay. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. They did. They thought that was very questionable. And. Um, now he they, he had a demonstration in vine, in, 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 uh, involving Heinz. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, he wanted to show how the blood would spatter, so he took the border town ketchup in his mouth, and he had David Rudolph hold up this piece of paper, and he blew it out, and it got on the paper, but it also got a lot on Rudolph, and um, that really ticked him off. So that was, again, like I said, that's Henry Lee. Um, we'll also talk, we could talk a little bit now, but let's wait until we talk, uh, you know, we'll wrap up with the, uh, you know, after the trial and and some of the things that came out about uh, Dwayne Deaver. We'll talk about Dwayne Deaver uh, at the end here. But so we're we're going along. How long, of, uh, again, it's in the book, but you can tell me how, about how long was the trial? Three months. Three months. Was it was it, I know there was a blackout and there was a hurricane. So there were some some interruptions, there were some breaks. Yes. But it was pretty much they didn't do long two week breaks for, for something. No, to happen. no, it, it, it was pretty intense. It was a long three months. And, and I was going, to as you say, long three months. We also had um, <clears throat> right near the end, I guess, just at the point of of deliberation, uh, ended up losing some jurors. Uh, not thank God, nothing really amazingly, you know, uh, awful that they did. Uh, but it was like, oh, I remember he was a customer in my bank or this or that. So, and then you have a great story in there about this alternate that thank yeah. God I'm done. I'm done. I can go home now. I, and hello. And they plucked him to fill the, yeah. the void. Um, so at the point of, of closing arguments and uh, charged by the judge, where were you standing? Oh, by that time, I was definitely on the side of the prosecution because I thought they had thoroughly proven their case. Um, A lot of people will disagree with me because they saw the documentary and they saw the HBO Max series. And there is so much information in my book that is pertinent that was not included in either one of those documentaries. I mean, either one of those films. And, um, you know, I, I not only observed what was going on in the courtroom, I was able to do a lot of research on the evidence presented. And, and I went through all the evidence, every little bit of it, and the documents and everything, and, and even the physical evidence. And it was an, uh, a slam dunk to me, but my worry was... Uh, talking to the French producers, they were so certain that he was going to be found not guilty. A lot of the reporters on the scene were certain he was going to be found not guilty. And to me, that would have been a travesty. But I do want to know, do you, can you uh, direct me to a couple of things that you say are in the book and not in the documentaries? Well, number one, the red not- neurons, they were not mentioned in the documentary or HBO Max. Um the documentary didn't cover anything about Michael's temper and the problem he had with his temper. Uh, HBO Max did. Um, and there were just a lot of background information about his family and um, his uh, 
Kathleen's family and, and just the people, because personally, I think the people are more important than the crime. And so I delved deeply into that. And one of my sources was Michael Peterson's sister, Anne. And um, she was very forthcoming. She, if you read my book, you will not find her name in the acknowledgments because she begged me not to use her name because she was so afraid of Michael. He was sort of accomplished. He sort of got onto a niche because he was in Vietnam of writing books that were uh, inspired, uh, not, you know, true story, but novels. Uh, he, you know, was a, a New York, I guess it went on to the bestseller list. One of, one them. of them did. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he made a lot of money from one of them, which obviously got blown pretty quickly. Obviously, he you know, he was poor at the end or, you know, had to depend on her. But his and he but then there's the other side that needs to be brought up that he lied about uh, how many medals he had. He had to admit to that when he was running for local office. Yeah. He wrote articles uh, very, very um, uh, critical of the authorities, police, et cetera, DA mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in Durham. Uh, very, you know, so it was, quote, unquote, not a good relationship based on that. And it was a little back and forth of, you know, either they writing, I forget, you know, letters to the editor or or press releases. And so one of the attempts at uh, from the defense was saying that the police had it in for him. Did you Here's buy the it? honest truth? Mostly the people that he attacked were police in the mid in administration and the rank and file police officers were big fans of that. I mean, you know, the big guys, you, you, they, they're always frustrating you in one way or another. And so he he was not disliked, not even by the detective. He said he. He made some real valuable point, valid points about the police department administration. I said he, he said that um, sometimes they, he went a little over the top, but the point was valid. So he was um, uh, sentenced right then, correct? To life without parole. Yes. Right. So the, the verdict comes back. You're guilty. They polled everybody. Is this your signature? So on and so forth. All that stuff we see. And then please rise. And he was uh, he was sentenced. They didn't have to have sentence hearings, you know, and 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 and, and of course, unfortunately, no impact statements. Nothing mm -hmm. like that happens in this kind of situation. You're just gone. And so he was gone. So now we're going to talk a little bit about appeals. So we'll keep it as general as necessary. But I do want to wrap yeah. it. Your book ends with the conviction and going to prison. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's an after uh, afterward here about his case. Yeah, he uh, he was one of those people that kind of got lucky because he tried appeals that did not work. And then Dwayne Deaver was exposed as having lied about some of his um, experience, that he did perform some experience that were yeah, experiments on blood spatter that were highly irregular. And so that that granted uh, Peterson a new trial. And then things were going kind of wonky in Durham. Uh, do you remember the, the Duke lacrosse team? Yes, yes. Well, the guy that was D.A. then, the guy that was D.A. when Kathleen Peterson died, went on to become a judge. And he was replaced by a man who... Um, was in charge of the lacrosse thing and he made a mess of that 
and uh, made prejudicial statements before trial, and and it it was and it ended up that it was it was the claims were false anyway, and uh, so he, it just the whole department was in turmoil because of this. So we uh, ended up sitting there and just sitting there, waiting to see what happened. Michael's got a leg bracelet on, ankle bracelet on, um, and he's uh, got a curfew, and 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 we're just waiting, waiting, waiting for a trial to start. And it doesn't start. It doesn't start. And then suddenly, there was an agreement to an Alfred plea, an Alfred plea. Um, is considered a guilty plea. But in that plea, the defendant says, I am not admitting that I did anything wrong. However, I am acknowledging that the state has enough to prosecute and win a case of manslaughter against me. So when that happened, he was sentenced and he was released on time served. But what was good even during the trial, I, as I'm reading, again, falling asleep on all the information about money, but I, as I'm reading, I'm going, did he, did he, thankfully they charged him so quickly. He didn't get the insurance money, did he? I'm saying to myself, now I'm looking forward. Ah, they smart. Maybe that's procedure. They, the insurance company gave it to the court and said, you decide what to do with this. And they, after the trial, they said, you're not entitled to it based on the guilty verdict. And boom, it went to, you know, next to Ken. He did get some of her back pay from Mortel. Yeah, I know. I saw that. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, that was that that was very disturbing. But, you know, those things happen. A lot. So, so now, again, and I, I have no reason I have no desire to see it, but there's obviously he's given he wrote a memoir and he's got uh, probably. Uh, yeah, your audience, this is audio only. But Diane just rolled her eyes. <laughs> uh, all the way back in her head and she's not mm-hmm. dead she just rolled her eyes back and um and he's been on talk shows and whatever i'm you know they've destroyed me and and i i i did nothing and whatever i don't even just for the even the nuisance value or whatever it's like you see an accident you have to pull over i don't even want to pull over on that accident because um i've done too many of these where innocent people are brutally killed, not just pushed yes, off a yes. cliff, brutally killed. And I'm sorry, I don't want to hear from, you know, I, I don't believe, um, speaking of Peterson, I don't believe Scott Peterson. I don't believe uh, uh, Shepard. I don't believe McDonald. I don't believe, I mean, any of those people have every right to I say I believe Shepard. You do? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but I will tell you that I was probably influenced very strongly by the Fugitive Show. <laughs> right. Well, yes. Because yes. I was a kid and yes. I watched that. Oh, I watched it know. every week. Um, yes, yes. But how are you on Peterson and uh, and McDonald? Guilty, guilty. Good. Me too. Um, so let's all wrap up here with, uh, as I said in the beginning, which I found you one of the most um, uh, primary source people is you not only were able to, in your acknowledgements or in your book, talk to a lot of the family members. And since then, again, this book was written in five, seven. It came out published in 2005. Five. In so now we're, we're talking 15 years later, you're still in touch with some of the, even mm-hmm. like yesterday, you said you're in touch with some of the, uh, the, the principles, correct? Correct. 
You want to throw I, a few um, names out for us? Yes. Yeah, as they go well, through the I, book? I talked with Margaret Blair, who is Liz Ratliff's sister, earlier this week. And um, I also, uh, a few days ago, got an email from Ann Peterson, to, which is Michael's sister, sending me her uh, viewpoint of the HBO Max series. Personally, I thought overall it was very well done. And I thought some of the acting was absolutely excellent. Um, but Anne, her, her impression is that it was pretty truthful. And she said that it showed my brother Mike pretty realistic and honest. Clearly, he is narcissistic, controlling, lying, bullying, foul-mouthed, abusive, and adulterous. It showed Clayton, the Duke bomb-making son, who spent four years in the federal penitentiary for it, and that later had two DUIs and a domestic violence report filed by his wife, Becky, after he hit her. It showed Todd, the alcoholic meth head, womanizing, handsome schemer. Patty, I like how they portrayed her. She is really sweet. The universal world seems to be, word seems to be odd, but a real sweetheart who loved her boys and Michael. Bill, oh my God, it was my brother. I could, would even get close to the TV to visit with him. That's my brother, Bill. The girls, well, the actors portraying them were perfect. It was Margaret and Martha. And um, she talks about uh, Michael rubbing Martha's nose in the carpet when she peed when she was three and saying, yes, she had lots of bruises said, I offered to take Martha in the 80s. Patty replied that she was better behaved now with loving discipline. And I think it's odd the way loving discipline was enacted in that household. Um, and she said that she wonders if the part about Martha going to back to Germany to visit the nanny and see the house was if that actually happened because she had been there to see the stairs and how the blood went to the top landing of the stairs. So um, she says, I, since they inter the series interviewed me for my opinions, I'm assuming that they had talked to her too. He said, she said, but I don't know if they're sure. And her final remark was, it didn't seem to be as much about a mysterious death as a study of a really odd family. Well, I think this is a good uh, point in the program to do a little uh, advertising. And so uh, for people who have had a good time today, enjoyed this web, uh, this uh, podcast, I hope you'll visit uh, the podcast's website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And not only can you link to all the other podcasts that I've done, you can also leave me a, a message excuse me, via email, uh, comments, or maybe some other cases out there you'd uh, like me to uh, look into. And you can also check out Diane. You have your own website. Is that correct? What is yes, that? Yes, sir. It is dianefanning.com. You don't even need the www. 
<laughs> Indeed, you are correct. Well, Diane, I'd like to ask one last question before I let you go. Uh, as I uh, remarked earlier, you've written many, many true grom to take two. <laughs> Indeed, you are correct. Well, Diane, after three trips uh, to the microphone here for you, I do want to ask you, um, you've written many uh, true crime books. Um, I, why? What, what draws you to this genre? I find myself most emotionally drawn to stories about successful women, mothers, who lose their lives in their own home. That is not something they deserve. They should be safe there. And it tears me up. We'll leave it at that. I agree with you 100%. Ladies and gentlemen, the clock on the wall tells us it's time to say goodbye. So have a great day, Diane, and thanks again. Thank you, Jim. It's nice talking to you again. From the pages of Written in Blood, 83-year-old Veronica Hunt was at a friend's house for a luncheon and a bridge party. In the middle of their game, the telephone rang. He's guilty! He's guilty! Turn on the TV! sounded through the room. She sat before the television set and watched her former son-in-law being led away in handcuffs. Her friends hugged her and cried in relief. They had all worried about a hung jury. One woman rushed home and grabbed a bottle of champagne so they could toast the verdict. Veronica was pleased that the obnoxious Rudolph had gotten his comeuppance. She was glad for a measure of justice for her daughter. But Kathleen was still dead. Kathleen's sister Candace was teaching sign language at a school near her home in Virginia when her husband brought her the news of the verdict. She was relieved but felt a heavy burden of pain. She knew that people expected her to jump up and down in excitement, but there was too much sadness for celebration. She had lost her sister, and now she had lost a brother-in-law as well. There was no winner. <laughs>